Right? No, no, that is true. But but I, when I go out into the real world, right. apparently some people don't agree with everything that yes. you and I have to say. Outside of our bubble. Uh-huh. Yeah. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is confused by the latest health study as I am by Teletubbies. That's it. Nothing else to say about it. I just wanted to point out, I don't understand the Teletubbies. Uh, do they still exist? They, well, I mean, I don't know if they're making... Your kids are far too old to be watching Teletubbies. No, my, my teenagers watch Teletubbies all the time. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. They love it. <laughs> I don't, I just, I've never understood Teletubbies. I was flipping channels and saw them again the other day and thought to myself, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't get this. Anyway, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health. And Chris is away this week, but uh, I am here with Dr. Jennifer Ryder from the Department of Epidemiology. Hi. How are you? Great. And I keep forgetting to mention it, but I should always say that we are here in the world famous Godly Studio. Nick Guler for sound and editing. Okay, so as always, we'd love it if you'd go over and give us a rating on your on your podcast app and help other people find us. Um, but I have nothing nothing clever to say this week about we got no new ratings or anything. No, but we have received a lot of Twitter love. Yeah, tell and us. We t- 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 go ahead. love Twitter love. Well, first, I have my own little, I mean, someone I admire deeply. Okay. Apparently is a big fan of the show. In fact, he says that free associations always goes to the top of his queue. And he did say queue because he's British. Oh. But he is a biostatistician at University uh, College London. Yeah. And do you know Matt Sides? Yes, yeah, so I went I went to and gave a talk at, at UCL. So I was I was fortunate enough. Yeah. yeah. So I know him from the prostate cancer world where uh, he's involved in some, I mean, really big deal trials. And, you know, he does a lot of work in adaptive trial design. And anyway, it was, it made me really, really happy to hear that he was listening. But that's really funny because when I was there, it would have been before you had, I mean, you had guest hosted, but you had not taken over. Oh, that's funny. For Don. So that's really funny. But but anyone else that you want to tell our listeners about? Well, then one of our Canadian friends, Megan Azad, apparently just received a six point five million dollar grant to study the uh, health effects of of breastfeeding and and breast milk. So congratulations to Megan. And she gets that shout out because she's a friend of the pod. That's right. So yep. you could hey, be a friend of the pod. You could be a friend of the pod. All you have to do is say nice things about us. That's all we need. Publicly. But obviously, it's got to be very public. Okay, so on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to look at a study, which is a trial of a breast cancer prevention drug. And then in the second part of our podcast, which is our deep dive, we'll talk about a paper on whether predatory journals get fewer citations than non-predatory journals. They do. They get fewer. And then in our Amazing and Amusing, we will talk about things that make us laugh out loud. If Chris were here, he would tell us why whales have grandmothers, but he's not here, so we'll have to amuse each other. (laughs) So let's get into it. Segment one. So we're going to talk about an article which was looking at a drug to prevent breast cancer. It was a follow-up of a trial that had previously been done looking at the longer term impacts of a particular drug. And it was published in the Lancet and the study was entitled use of anastrozole. Do you think that was even close? Yeah, I think that's great. 
Use of anastrozole for breast cancer prevention, IBIS-2, long-term results of a randomized controlled trial. The first author was Jack Cusick of the Center for Cancer Prevention at Queen Mary University in the London, UK. Is that how you say it? Or would you say London, England, UK? <laughs> um, I don't know. I think London. Or would you say the, the country formerly a member of Europe? <laughs> I don't, know, I don't know how how we say this. Anyway, you get the idea. So some headlines on this one. So uh, US, this is from usnews.com. They say breast cancer drug shows long-lasting prevention power. BBC News says drug can prevent half of breast cancers. Breast cancer preventive effects of anastrozole continued long after treatment ends, says Medscape. And we could talk about whether or not those are indeed accurate headlines because I think there's some misleading points in some of them a little bit, but we'll come back to that. Um, so can you can you walk us through this study? Sure. So many people are probably familiar with selective estrogen receptor modulators or SERMs, such as tamoxifen and raloxifene. And those have been shown to reduce the risk of estrogen receptor positive tumors by half. And those have been demonstrated to continue to have a protective effect for maybe 15 years after after treatment ends, so quite a long time. Two trials have shown an even larger reduction in breast cancer risk for aromatase inhibitors, of which anastrozole is one example. The other would be eczemostain, mm-hmm. I think. Does that sound right to you? Well, yes, but you're talking to me who mispronounces everything, so it's probably wrong. <laughs> so one of those trials was the MAP3 trial. So that included postmenopausal high-risk women and found a 65% reduction in invasive breast cancer for exemistane versus placebo after 35 months. Longer-term evaluation was not done in that study because the participants were unblinded after, after their, their treatment ended. And then there was the International Breast Cancer Intervention Study 2, IBIS-2, which is the study population used for this paper. So that was an international, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. They included postmenopausal women at high risk of breast cancer who were randomized to one milligram daily of anastrozole or placebo for five years. And the initial analysis of that trial found a 53% reduction for all breast cancer and a 58% reduction in invasive breast cancer for anastrozole after a median follow-up of 60 months. But these drugs are associated with some adverse events, so things like fractures, joint problems, and menopausal symptoms, all things that you would expect given that the women are being pretty much completely depleted of of estrogen. So this study was designed to evaluate the long-term efficacy of anastrozole for breast cancer prevention after that five years of treatment ended. So women who were included were all postmenopausal women aged 40 to 70 years. They were recruited between 2003 and 2012, and they had to have a high risk of breast cancer. So that was defined by different age groups. So for instance, 40 to 44-year-old women had to have four times the risk of the general population. 45 to 60-year-old women had to have twice the risk of the general population. And for 60 to 70-year-old women, one and a half times the risk. 
They included women who had previously had breast cancer, including ductal carcinoma in situ, so non-invasive breast cancer, more than six months before trial entry. They excluded women who had used a selective estrogen receptor modulator for more than six months. They excluded women who intended on continuing their hormone replacement therapy or who had a previous or planned mastectomy. So I mentioned that the the follow-up from other trials couldn't be completed because of unblinding of the treatment. So in this particular study, unblinding was only done if the participant developed breast cancer or when the clinician felt there were valid medical or safety concerns that warranted unblinding, or if the participant specifically requested unblinding. So 81.3% of the treatment arm and 76.7% of the placebo arm was still unblinded at the time of of this study. Their outcomes were invasive and non-invasive breast cancer, but they also were interested in secondary outcomes that included estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, breast cancer mortality, other cancers, cardiovascular disease, fractures, and all-cause mortality. So there were 3,864 women assigned to treatment and 1,944 assigned to the placebo who were analyzed, all analyzed as part of this study. The women were 59 years at study entry and 96... 59 years on average? 59, oh, a median, median 59 years, sorry. And at the end of their anastrozole treatment, 96% were still at risk of developing breast cancer. So this study had a follow-up, a median follow-up of 11 years. And during that time, there were 250 breast cancers in total diagnosed, and they found a 49% reduction for overall breast cancer. And they termed their, the confidence interval, which goes from 0.39 to 0.66, is described as highly significant, which I know you love. Matt. Highly. They found that the reduction was strongest in the five years immediately following treatment, but it did remain at a 37% reduction even in subsequent years. The results for invasive cancers really seem to be driven by estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, which reflected three quarters of all of the, the cancers that were diagnosed among the participants. The reduction for DCIS was 59%. DCIS? Ductal carcinoma in situ, so non-invasive breast cancer. At 12 years, the risk of breast cancer was 8.8% in the placebo group and 5.3% in the treatment group. So that equates to a number needed to treat to prevent one breast cancer of 29. They looked at other cancers after completion of treatment and found a reduction in the risk of non-melanoma skin cancer. So the hazard ratio was 0.59. They didn't find any association with endometrial cancer, which is another estrogen-responsive tumor. And they had previously found an association, um, again, an inverse association with colorectal cancer, but that no longer persisted in this follow-up study. They didn't really find any major differences in adverse events. So 
one issue is that data on less serious side effects wasn't collected during the extended follow-up period. Mm -hmm. So they couldn't look at things like hypertension or joint stiffness or night sweats, things that it would have been associated with estrogen depletion. And they also didn't really have the ability to look at breast cancer mortality. Um, there were only five total events during, during the follow-up period. Okay. So is it safe to say that essentially this is a, a long-term follow-up of a prevention drug that had already been shown to be effective at preventing breast cancer, but that was during the time at which people were taking the drug. Now, when we go and look for an additional, what is it, about seven years? I think it was 11 years. 11 years total. 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 And that's 11 past the five, so six or seven years afterwards. The benefits seem to persist and maybe get wider, get, get bigger. I don't know about get bigger. They were, I mean, it did seem like they were strongest in the first five years following treatment. Yeah. Um, so I don't know they're they're getting stronger over time, but they seem to persist for quite a while over over uh, extended follow-up. Yeah, and I, I think this is part of what I want to get back to is do we think that that really there is, you know, an increase in the benefit or a staying the same in the benefit or or some kind of, of a reduction? And I say that because, first of all, I, I've, I've made it, I think I've said it before, I, I'm not a big fan of the idea of trying to look at whether effects change over time by conditioning on survival up to a certain point Mm -hmm. after the randomization. I mean, I suppose you could ask the question, is this a randomized trial or not? Clearly, it was a randomized trial in the original, but is this analysis, would you call this a randomized trial? I mean, I would. It's just extended follow-up because the same, I mean, they included all of the women. I think if they had started only including subgroups of the women who were randomized, that would be a problem. But it was the original study population just followed for a longer time period. So I would say yes. Yeah, and I I, I would agree with that for the so they have they have an interesting Kaplan Meyer curve. They have a Kaplan Meyer curve starts at at uh, zero. It's uh, cumulative breast cancer incident starts at zero, and then you see you know the lines going up as women begin to develop breast cancer over the first five years, the curves diverge quite quickly and dramatically. Then what they have, and they follow that out over 12 full years, but Mm -hmm. then they essentially restart the clock at five years and they present a second set of cumulative incidence curves that are the same people that are in the curves above them, but restarting the clock, essentially saying starting at five years. And so while I would agree, I, I absolutely agree with you that when we look from zero to 12 years, we're talking about a randomized trial. When you look from five years, I think that's an observational study because at that point you've conditioned on no breast cancer up to that point. You've created a selection bias by design. Well, and I think it's even worse because they've demonstrated an effect up to that point. So I think if there hadn't been any effect of the drug, maybe it wouldn't be quite as problematic. But you you know that there's differential death between or not uh, breast cancer risk yep. between those two groups. Yeah. So I take issue with that as a, a general point, but I I don't think it's super problematic here as long as you kind of just ignore that bottom part of the curve and mm-hmm. instead just focus on as you say this is a just think of this as a randomized trial in which instead of following people for five years on average we follow them for twelve years. Mm-hmm. 
And then I think you can draw inferences that I think um, still make sense. It does contrast with, I think, some of the message that they wanted to give, which is that the effect persisted after five years, not just persisted, but that there was an effect after five years. So they report after five years, the hazard ratio was 0.64, 95% confidence interval from 0.45 to 0.91. I don't put a lot of stock in that. Mm-hmm. Rather, I put the stock into the between zero and 12 years, the hazard ratio was 0.51 with a 95% confidence interval from 0.31 to 0.66. In other words, a, a 50% reduction in the incidence of invasive breast cancer. Invasive breast cancer? Or just breast cancer, breast cancer incidents over twelve years. To me, that's the that's the real story here. Yeah, looking at the curve, most of it is happening in the first five years, but it's possible there's something going on after that. Just not really clear on what it is. Yeah. So I think this is also another great example of when presentation of differences in restricted mean survival time would be really really helpful. And I credit my being a convert to RMSTs to Ludovic Trinkart, who's a biostatistician at... Who's, who's been on the program before? He has been a guest yeah, on the program. Go, yeah, Back when we talked pre, about meta-analysis. But, um, Pre-you, yep. Anyway, but he's done a lot of methodologic work in this area. And I think it's a very just intuitive, clinically useful way to communicate results. Can so, you explain what it is? Sure. So it's basically the average survival up to some landmark time. You you can provide that information in the treatment group and then in the placebo group, and then you can take a difference between those two uh, restricted mean survival times. And basically what you're then saying is how much longer do people live on average if they're treated up to, say, five years or up to 10 years? And if we, and then you can compare how those change over time and determine whether or not most of the benefit is is restricted to, you know, the first five years after treatment or whether you end up getting much larger gains with longer follow-up. And does it not suffer from that same problem of the fact that you've now conditioned on the first five years? Why not? You're just extending. You're not- Oh, so you're I'm not, not conditioning, condi- I'm nope. extending. You're extending. Ah, yeah. okay. Yeah. Okay. So uh, yeah, that seems to me a, a, a valid approach. I mean, I, I, the other thing I suppose you could do, which I do think is reasonable, I'm not positive it is, but is they, they do give us the zero to five year hazard ratio and the zero to 12 year hazard ratio. Mm-hmm. Neither one of those is conditioned. And you can see that the zero to 12 year is less than the zero to five years. That would suggest that you know the, the effects are getting lessening as you go yeah. out. But it, obviously, you know that it is conditioned on survival up to that time point if you're trying to make that. So, you, you know, you, you can sort of see that over the long term, the effect is not quite as yeah. as large. But I agree. This this isn't how I would have approached getting at that that issue. Yeah. The, but overall, seems like uh, a benefit. So we had, you and I had chatted earlier about the mortality data. And I said to you that I thought it was only over five years. But I realized now it was so they found no mortality benefit over the 12 years of follow-up. Is that concerning at all? I mean, obviously, a reduction in breast cancer is is a good in and of itself, but it comes along with side effects. And the ultimate goal, obviously, is to reduce mortality. So Why I think they we were only a- looking at breast cancer mortality, right? Did they also – I don't think they specified overall mortality. So I, let me read you what it said. It said okay. 139 
3.6% of women died during the study, 69 in the anastrozole and 70 in the placebo group, with no difference between the two treatment groups, hazard ratio 0.96, 95% confidence interval from 0.69 to 1.34. Okay. And yeah, a you're p-value, right. which I will not dignify even with even reading. Yeah. So... I don't know. I guess I, I'm not so surprised that they didn't find a, a difference in overall mortality because really we would expect for that to be driven by breast cancer mortality in this study population. And there were only five breast cancer deaths in total, two in one arm and three in the in the other. I don't I, and, and- I, I think it's great that they looked at overall mortality because, you know, we would certainly want to know whether the treatment was harmful but but I'm I'm not so surprised that they didn't find a benefit to treatment on overall mortality. Well, I, I'll say a little bit more about that because I'm I guess I'm I'm not totally understanding why we wouldn't I mean 12 years is I you know obviously 20 years 30 years we'd want to see but 12 years seems to be a reasonable amount of time such that if you are preventing cases of breast cancer you should be also preventing breast cancer mortality. But these women were 50, median 59 years when they enrolled in the trial. They were pretty young and, you know, they didn't have, they were free from breast cancer at high risk of breast cancer, but free from breast cancer. And while the drug seems to be preventing breast cancer incidents, I think it is probably too soon to see any benefit on on breast cancer mortality. So, so do you think that if they do the 20-year the follow-up, the 30-year follow-up of the same population, we would see a reduction in breast cancer mortality? Yes, I would guess yes. Okay, so, so you don't think it's that there is no benefit. It's that you think it's we just haven't premature. Looked, it's premature. It's too early. Yeah, that would be my guess. Okay, because my other theory is, you know, is it possible that while we're preventing cases of breast cancer, we are not preventing the cases that would necessarily be detected and and lead to mortality. So I would be, I would have, I think that's why they presented the results stratified by invasive or DCIS. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we would have seen a a larger reduction in risk of DCIS, I think that would be a legitimate, a legitimate concern. Because that would be non-invasive, less likely to, to lead to to mortality. Exactly. Hmm. Okay. All right. I, 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 that makes a lot of sense to me. So a couple of things. We haven't really talked about it, but they present here the one of the one of the ways that they present their results in tr- is in terms of the number needed to treat. They say that the number needed to treat to prevent one case of breast cancer during the first twelve years of follow up was twenty nine, whereas tamoxifen would be fifty eight. I am not a huge fan of the number needed to treat. <laughs> And but yet I, you love risk differences. So I know, tell us why. I know. No, 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 no. It's the opposite. I'm going to ask you <laughs> to explain to me the number needed to treat if you can do it. And if you can't, we'll just cut this whole thing out of the, okay. the podcast. Because I don't. I just don't totally get it. It's not that I conceptually don't totally get it. I do, but I don't know. Isn't I, it just it's the reciprocal of the risk difference. It's one divided by the risk difference. And, and, and how and we interpret it as the number of people that I would need to give this drug to in order to prevent a single case of breast Breast cancer. cancer. Correct. And that number would be, in this case, 20 or 30... It's 28 or 29, right? 29. Uh, 29. 29. 
Okay, so why don't I like it? I don't like it. I don't know. It. I, I just, mean, it seems like it seems like if you if you're a risk difference guy, I am a risk difference a, guy. You're an NNT guy. Uh, I don't know, Nick. Are you an NNT guy or a risk difference guy? Ah, <laughs> uh, he's he's telling us that he is none of the above. Apparently, okay. So you're saying I should give him a second look. I will. I will tell you. I was reading this, and I have my usual reaction to number needed to treat. So I put out a. Uh, a tweet that said, why is it exactly that I'm supposed to hate the number needed to treat? And I got some responses that said, it's not, not that I'm supposed to hate it, but there are some limitations. But then I got too lazy and I didn't read them. <laughs> and I figured I'd just ask you and you don't have the answers. So no. I don't know what to do. One other issue I wanted to raise is uh, something that we talked about in the last podcast was the the issue of effect measure modification. You know, does the effect of this particular drug vary within different things? What they did was they looked at all breast cancer, all invasive, and then all DCI, which I'm just DCI? S. DCIS, all DCIS. Do you get the sense there is a fair bit of effect modification? I can you know, give you the, the figure there, but was it, I mean, do you interpret these? I, I will just say to start with, it, it's hard to read because one of the things that they did, which I am in favor of, is they chose to present the results for effect modification in the form of, I don't know what you'd call this. I'd call it a forest plot. But yep. Essentially, like, you know, rather than giving me just a table, they gave me a figure, which I love. But the problem that they have is they put a lot of other text in there and it squishes down the size of the table such that I can't actually see very well whether there are, you know, big changes in the effect sizes. Agreed. So, no, I look at these results and say they're all more or less the same. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, the point estimates do vary a little bit. They do. You know, some, you know, for, again, let's not look at the years of follow-up, but looking at different, well, that's what this one is actually. No, no, it's stratified by years of follow-up, but if you look at it, it's it's DC. Oh, I see what you're saying. It's it's invasive and and non-invasive. Is that fair to say? Yep. So, right. So for, you know, estrogen receptor positive invasive cancers, the hazard ratio is 0.6. For estrogen receptor negative invasive, it's 0.77. You know, so those are, they're different, but, you know, but the confidence intervals for the non, for the ER negative tumors are are really wide. I don't know. I'm not willing to, based on those results, say this seems to be more effective for any subtype of breast cancer. I'm with you. I'm with you. It's hard to, it's hard to say. I, what I'm wondering is, you know, more of a general question and not specific to this, but do you think we miss opportunities to really think about effect modification yeah, whether you want to think about that on the relative or the absolute scale, I tend to think of it on the absolute scale, but that we we miss opportunities to really think about it because we're so focused on main effects that, you know, if we're dealing with something that is, in this case, a trial, you know, you've got ethical issues that would say we don't want to give this to more people than we have to until we know it's effective, but then we're never going to be powered to be able to detect or really understand whether the effects differ within subgroups. And yet, to me, at least in theory, theory predicts that there should be differences in effect sizes you know, across lots of different subgroups. And we, we rarely really know what they are because we don't have the power to the, the sample sizes to be able to really determine. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this is a, a situation where I think... 
I'm guessing the authors would have expected that the effect of the drug would be stronger in ER-positive tumors. The vast majority of the women included in the trial had who were diagnosed with breast cancer had ER-positive tumors. And so, you know, in a way, the subgroup of people with ER-negative tumors, they're not really contributing much, much at all. You're not going to be able to um, make any conclusions about that group, but it's also the one that in some ways is biologically less less interesting. Yep. And this is, uh, to me, this is a case where I think differences would have, would may have told a different story. Um, <laughs> and looking at uh, effect modification on the different scale, I think makes so much more, more sense, but I've heard people make their arguments passionately in the opposite, so... I'll leave that one for the moment. Maybe not, at, not at B-U-S-P-H, you haven't, right? No, no, that is true. But <laughs> but I, when I go out into the real world, right. <laughs> apparently some people don't agree with everything that yes. you and I have to say. Outside of our bubble. Uh-huh. Yeah. But that may be that may be a topic we want to come back to at some point as a, as a, as a bigger second topic, because I do think that there is reason to believe that absolute effects make more sense. And yet we rarely look in the absolute scale for differences in effect size. Okay, why don't we move on to our second segment where we want to talk about an article that asks whether predatory journals get as many citations as non-predatory journals. As I hinted in the beginning, the answer is no, they don't. So the article was in Science Mag and it was entitled Articles in Predatory Journals Receive Fewer or No Citations by Jeffrey Brainard. That's the article describing the article. So the main article was actually, um, it was a preprint. So it was in one of the, I don't know if it was BioArchive or which preprint server it was on, but the article was called How Frequently Are Articles in Predatory Open Act? How Frequently are articles in predatory open access journals. I clearly left something off because that's not the title. <laughs> I assume it's how often are they cited? How frequently are articles in predatory open access journals cited? Anyway, by Bo Christer Bjork and colleagues in Finland. And so just looking at their abstract here, so, so they they looked at citation statistics. Uh, over a five-year period using Google Scholar for 250 random articles published in journals in 2014, and they found an average of 2.6 citations per article, and they found that 60% of articles had no citations at all. Those are, sorry, I, and I should be clear, those are the ones that were found from a sample of predatory journals. They then took a random sample of articles, you know, comparison group that were not in predatory journals, in the approximately 25,000 peer-reviewed journals uh, included in Scopus Index, and they had an average of 18.1 citations in the same period with only 9% receiving no citations. So predatory journals are getting 60% of articles with no citations. The average article is getting 9%. Uh, And so they conclude that articles published in predatory journals have little scientific impact. So can we just stop worrying about predatory journals and move on? I'm afraid not. Oh, really? Sorry. Ah. No, I mean, I think that's, I mean, that's good news. I mean, it would have really stunk if they were getting as many citations. But as the the author of this article points out, you know, it's still, it's still out there and it can be cited on social media. And that's something that these citation indexes aren't, aren't particularly good at capturing. So did they mention anything about alt metrics? I don't, or, I do, uh, so because I it seems like that would have been a really nice, 
addition to this because if it was cited on you know on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere in the media, that would have been picked up by Altmetric, and it seems like that could potentially have much different results. Yeah, I think the question is: Do predatory journals get the the document number that's needed for an Altmetric search to be done? I actually don't know whether or not they do because I don't. I don't mm. think they're Predatory journals, I assume, are not indexed on PubMed. Right, which is why they used, is that why they used Google Scholar to? I guess. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about it. But but so I, my point is I don't know if you can do an altmetric search, which is. Oh, yeah. They say right here, Scopus and other widely used citation databases don't list most predatory journals. So the team used Google Scholar to count citations. Yeah, and I think that Apparently might. Apparently they cite everything. Yeah, and. Which is interesting, actually. You'd think that they might want to do something about that. Well, I know. So on your, so I have a related question. So on your CV. On my CV, how many predatory journals have I published in? <laughs> is that what you want to know? Well, Nick, or, I'm being harassed. No, or cite it. So like your H-index. Yes. So you could use your Web of Science H-index or your Google Scholar H-index. Oh. The Google Scholar one is always more generous. So I feel like people tend to use that one. Definitely using but that one. But maybe it's because, you know, citations no. from predatory journals are, are counting. Well, cita- meaning, oh, so you're saying yeah. that the, the predatory journal article cites me. Yeah. I get credit for that. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that is possible. I mean, it does seem like Google has their own ways of of finding these things that are not the same as PubMed. Right. So like conference abstracts, I think, are counted on Google Scholar, but not in in these other To the extent that they can be indexed. Yeah, yeah, Uh yeah, yeah. Huh. Okay, so you were not you were not trying to imply that I publish in no. predatory journals. You were trying to imply that predatory journals that someone you know probably well known and respected, yeah, like you, could be easily cited by an author that's published in a predatory journal. Is there a way to figure that out? Can you do so? Yeah, you can because you can look at who has cited your papers. Yes, and then if you knew what the predatory you'd have to know what the predatory journals were you would okay one of our listeners has to build an app that does this that that takes the citations for your articles Mm -hmm. and forward links them to a list of predatory journals to find out how many predatory journals are citing you and then we could come up with some kind of an index to how attractive you are to people who publish in predatory journals i love it what are we going to call it the Ryder Fox Index, the RF Index. No, no, it's going to be the Nick Guler Index. That's what it's going to be, the, the Guler Index. So can I just go back for a second and, and actually talk about the article? Is this good news? I mean, it's it's certainly not the worst news, right? Right, the, the news could be worse. The fact that 60% of them never get cited is good news, but 40% of them do get cited. Right. I don't know much about the other 40%. I mean, are, are, are they getting cited by other predatory articles, journals and articles in predatory journals that are never getting read as well? You know, I, it's not nothing. It's not nothing. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I feel like it would be helpful to know a little bit more about the distribution. And again, I didn't read the whole right, article, right, right, so right. it could be in there. But you figure, you know, these predatory journals here are competing with, you know, the New England journals of the world in this analysis, whereas there is a class of reputable journals that 
that have a relatively low impact factor, and s- right? And how do those compare to the predatory drug? I mean, I think that would be that would be worse news. So I think we we talked about this at one point that that there you know there are not a lot of articles out there I think that get cited zero times, mm-hmm. but I do agree with your point that that you know we wouldn't we probably wouldn't want to compare predatory journals to the New England Journal of Medicine. We'd want to compare it to uh, what would we want to compare it to though? I mean, what is the what is the right comparison? My immediate mind went to counterfactuals, but this is not a counterfactual question. <laughs> I just want to know, like, what's the right metric to be comparing to? And maybe, you know, maybe there's no right answer to that question, but you're right that it's there, there are probably lots of journals that, that have low impact factors for which because there are plenty of articles that don't get cited very niche often. Niche or whatever. I mean, there's some... Niche or there, there are just too many within yeah, the field. Sure, sure. Yeah, okay. I'm, not, I'm not sure what the right comparison group is, but I think... You know, this was a random sample of all uh, publications from all journals in Scopus. That was the the comparison group, right? So may, maybe you do end up with, you know, most of those are articles from, I don't know, more middling journals in mm. terms of impact factor. I have no idea. But. Do you do you know how many of your articles have been cited zero times? No, but. I probably should clarify that okay. though, because I mean you probably want to think of like how many have been cited zero times that have been are older than exactly you know because whatever the new ones it's likely yeah right, right. now I, I don't know the answer for me yeah. either I was but just curious I'm gonna, I'm gonna that go is. look when we're done here are we gonna have a competition <laughs> as long as Chris loses that's all that matters as long as Chris loses. You know what? Chris isn't here. Let's yeah. just say Chris yeah, lost that one. You have to play to win. You got to so. play to win. Sorry, Chris. All right. So bottom line. Not good news, but not the worst that it could possibly be. Maybe we should take some uh, comfort in this, but overall, it's not probably the the greatest story that I ever heard. Agreed. All right. So let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing. And uh, what do you got for us? So I was just in Gothenburg, Sweden for a conference. You were? Yeah, I was. I'm jealous. Yeah. I would um, love to go there. Sweden's second largest city. It's lovely. I like it a lot. How far is it from Stockholm? By train, I'm guessing five hours, Mm. probably. It's on the other side. So it's West Coast. Stockholm is East Coast. So pretty much straight across the country. I'm going to be in Stockholm later in the year, but I don't think that uh, I would then make it across. You would have to extend your trip. But um, it's a nice city. And I I had been there before, but I had never visited the art museum, which I did on Mm. an afternoon off. And they had this fantastic exhibit about the cameras that were used to take pictures of the moon landing. Oh. Which, of course, you know, we've all seen those photos, but I've never really thought about the fact that they had to, you know, bring this camera into space. And apparently up until 1962 or so, all of the space pictures had been really disappointing. And it was Walter Shearer, who was a NASA astronaut and amateur photographer, who owned a camera called a Hasselblad Okay. Hasselblad, Nick knows what this is. Yeah, Hasselblad 500C. Do you know that? Is that, that, is that model? the one you use, Nick? The 500C? No, too much oh, money. Oh wow! Yeah, Pricey Nick, cameras. Nick can okay. only afford the 200A. 
So, yeah, it's too bad. So it was Walter Shira who suggested to NASA that they use Hasselblad cameras on their space missions. Sorry, who? Who did this? An, an, an astronaut okay. named, named Walter Shira. So he was part of the Mercury 8 mission. Okay. So it was, in fact, a Hasselblad camera that went on six orbits of the Earth and took lots of pictures, many of which we've seen. And that started this long collaboration between the Hasselblad camera company and NASA. And Victor Hasselblad was from Gothenburg, and his first photo shop was actually was in Gothenburg. But the reason that this, you know, small Swedish company ended up having this big deal with NASA was because Victor Hasselblad's dad met George Eastman, the founder of what later became Kodak, while on his honeymoon, and they became family friends. And so Victor Hasselblad apprenticed for uh, George Eastman and, you know, taught him a lot of what he knew about camera technology, which then ended up landing these cameras on the moon. That's amazing. So you know the photo, the really famous photo of the footprint from the Apollo 11 mission, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was taken on one of these modified Hasselblad cameras. But the interesting thing is, you know, when the the astronauts return to Earth, they have to leave a lot of things behind. So there are now, I believe, 12 camera bodies from the <gasps> Apollo 11 to 17 missions that are still lying on the surface of the moon. They just left them there? They just left them there. They take the film with them, but they leave the camera body because the weight requirements are so restrictive for returning to Earth. Well, that's littering. Yeah. Yeah. I did not know that. So if I went to the moon, I could go and find these cameras. I mean, maybe they would be buried in moon dust. I mean, that was a long time ago, Matt. But, I, don't, I don't know. But I mean, but yes, they are still, I mean, they are still They're there. They're still there. Yeah. Yeah. I think they've only bought, so cool. brought one entire camera back from a mission to the moon. Huh. I did not know that. So, and I'm going to go on a tangent here for a second, but th- it is really interesting to me because we don't we don't think nearly as much about photography anymore because people have phones in their pockets that are pretty good quality phones and people are constantly photographing everything. You cannot go to an art museum and actually look at the art anymore. You have to look at people holding cameras up to the art. And I will admit that I have done it too, <laughs> but that is what people actually do. And I was watching a documentary the other day on the, I'm going to go very specific here, on the the last time the, well, not the last time, but the second to last time the Bruins, Boston Bruins oh, won yeah. the, the Stanley Cup in the uh-huh. Bobby Orr days. And you know, the, the very famous photo of Bobby Orr. Yes. He scores the goal to beat the St. Louis Blues, and then he dives into the air. And there's that photo of him captured in midair. And that photograph, I had always just assumed that was like one of, you know, everybody got that photo because there were all the press there and they were taking these pictures. But it was, you know, this was the 1970s and it, you actually had to be in the right place at the right time. And there was this one guy who just decided to go over to this place because nobody else was sitting there. And, you know, he was, he was in the press and he, you know, just saw, you know, everyone else was sort of moving away because it was the end of overtime. They thought it was, you know, they didn't know it was going to happen. And, um, and he, so he was the only one who caught this image 
and it's been preserved for every they've sold the the negatives for a huge amount of money but like you used to have to like be in the right place in the right time now there's always somebody in the right place at the right time it seems like anyway apparently on the moon as well all right. Yes, that was random. I know that was random, but I just. No, but uh, we all, well, all of us from Boston, at least know that photo very yes. well. Yes, yeah. we do. For those of you who don't Google Bobby Orr, Stanley Cup, victory, and you'll find the photograph. Okay. So for mine, I want to talk about a study that I found that was published in Pier J, published in 2010 by Paul Wicks and Lee Lancashire. And I have to admit, I I think it's a, It's probably it's got to be a bad study because I do not agree with the study's conclusions and therefore it must be a bad study. <laughs> so you just told us that you were you went to Sweden. Presumably you flew there. Did you? I did. Did you watch any movies on the plane? I did. Do you care to disclose what you watched? Sure. I don't know if I'll remember them all, but I did watch Late Night mm-hmm. with Mindy Kaling. Yep. And I didn't love it. You didn't, yeah, yeah. It was a good plane movie, yeah, though. Well, so that's yeah. part of um, where we're going here. That's where we're going. Okay. Oh, what else did I watch? Mm. This. So I find I have like movie amnesia on after, an overnight flight. Yes, I land. I cannot tell you what I watched. Yeah. The next the next morning, I cannot tell you what I watched. But that's that is not where I'm going with okay. this. Maybe another one will come to me. All but. right. So, do you subscribe to the theory of altitude adjusted lachrymosity syndrome? That planes make me tired? No. They, they make you unusually weepy and emotional. Oh, yes. I mean, I, t- I talk about this with my friends all the time, that I cry more on airplanes than in any other situation in my life. Absolutely. You're yeah. watching a movie yeah. that is like, you watch it at home and you're like, okay. You watch it on a plane and just tears streaming down my face. And it's so strange because... In economy, you know, you have some strangers sitting within inches of you. And, you know, there was a time when I used to try and hide it, you know, that I would, you know, pretend Uh like my nose was runny or something. And now I just, I just let it go. I just, absolutely, yeah, it's, it feels great. It feels really good. And the other thing is I find that movies are funnier. Funny movies are funnier when you're at 30,000 feet. Even though, again, it's awkward to laugh out loud uh-huh. with your earphones on next to a bunch of strangers, but yet it it often happens. So these folks uh, wanted to find out whether or not I it was a real thing. It. I love it. So they did a they did a survey. Uh, oh, and by the way, I so there was a lot of interesting stuff in here in the background, I thought. This was a, a, a really good read. They were talking about that David Cronenberg, the director apparently was one of the first people to talk about this. And then since then, all kinds of people have been talking about it. Quentin Tarantino went on, I don't know, it was Jimmy Kimmel or whatever it was. And so they, they these authors are talking about the, the David Cronenberg interview as being the index case for which, you know, started off people talking about these things. Oh, Colbert. Tarantino went on Colbert and said, there's something about watching a romantic comedy on an airplane flight I think you become more emotional when you're three, three miles in the air. I found myself crying, just literally weeping at movies I'd be embarrassed to confess I'd watched, which I agree. There are movies that I, maybe the reason I don't remember what I watched is because I'm embarrassed embarrassment. to tell anyone that I watched it, but you're, you know, you're looking for a good, you know, just uh, something to pass the time. And so you watch things that you wouldn't watch any otherwise. So they did, um, 
an Amazon Mechanical Turk survey. So, you know, these, you know, you can go on and you can pay people to to run a survey for you. And they surveyed a little above a thousand people living in the United States who had watched a film on a plane in the last 12 months. Really short survey. And their main outcomes were likelihood of crying as um, used a logistic regression model in and they included information on location of viewing, age, gender, genre of film, subjective film rating, annual household income, watching a guilty pleasure film, drinking alcohol, <laughs> feeling tired or jet lag, and having a recent emotional life event. And here's what they found. About one in four films induced crying, but watching a film on a plane per se does not appear to induce involuntary crying. Really? Significant predictors of crying included dramas or family films, a recent life event, <laughs> watching a guilty pleasure, <laughs> high film rating, and female gender. <laughs> and I got to say, I don't buy it. I think it's wrong. So I have it's so wrong. one variable that they study. didn't include was whether or not you are flying away from home or back home. Oh. So I so I'm curious what you think. I definitely think my crying intensifies on on in one direction. 1D, huh? Yeah. Wow, it's the you're away. Uh no, it's home. coming back. Really? Yes. No, my trip is over. Well, maybe I have to and I, you reality. know, I'm usually I mean, especially right if it's coming back from you're you're tired, you know, you're yeah. a little yeah, emotionally yeah, yeah. raw. Yeah. Um Sure. So I yeah, but I think that they should have looked at that. Huh. Did you like the movie Bend It Like Beckham? Did you see it? I never saw it. Oh. Uh, I saw that movie at 30,000 feet and thought it was the greatest thing ever. And I have no idea whether it really is, but you yeah. know, I, again, I just found myself like, well, I cried at late night. I mean, that's supposed to be a comedy. Okay. Wow. <laughs> All right. Cried at late night. All right. Well, I'll end it there. So that's the end of our program. If you get any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, or you can tweet us at, at pop healthy X, or you can tweet me at, at prop Matt Fox or Chris at ID.gill, or Jen at, at Jennifer R. Ryder, or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound editing and camera pricing advice. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. <laughs>